Well, good morning. How are we? Is it a little cold in here? It's freezing to me. Uh, so thank goodness I will be bringing the heat uh, from the word this morning. We are uh, in week two of our uh, series in the, the uh, epistle of James. So if you want to turn to James chapter one, uh, that is uh, near the back of your Bible, right after Hebrews, right before First Peter, at least in my Bible. Uh, this series and this book is, uh, you know, James itself is known as, as being a very practical uh, epistle. And uh, that is not to say that it is not full of theology. It's just that uh, it does seem that James, as a pastor, had a little bit of a bias towards uh, practical realities uh, in the lives of the people that he was speaking to. So what I'd like to do in order for us to understand verses 12 through 18 most fully is do a little bit of a recap of what Pastor Harvey uh, did last week uh, uh, so perfectly uh, and compellingly. But just because uh, there is a flow of thought in, in James's writing here that I want us to understand uh, where, how he's getting to where he's getting in, in verses 12 through 18. So if you'll start back at the top with me, James chapter 1, we'll skip verse 1, just, uh, which is just a greeting, and uh, get into verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, let's pause there because I think there is a uh, temptation for those of us who've been around the church, been around the Bible for a long time, to read a sentence like that and go, Yep, yep, okay, good, good, let's keep moving. But I want to stop for just a second and, and recognize the kind of the crazy of, of that statement. Right? And I want us to really feel the depth of the crazy in James uh, ver- uh, chapter 1, verse 2. He said, count it all joy. Consider it joy. Chalk it up as joy. Experience joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay? So think about what this is saying. Because there's a, there's a uh, kind of false piety that can happen in us or a churchiness that can happen where we go, yeah, yeah, this bad thing's happening. You know what? Praise God. Praise God this bad thing's happening. Praise God for cancer. Praise God for job loss. Praise God that this relationship is falling apart. Praise God because you know what? I trust God. God's doing what God's going to do. Praise God. And there is a sense in which if we actually mean that, Great. Great. We're going to talk about what that might mean to actually mean that. But there is also a kind of churchy way to do that that actually doesn't reckon with the seriousness or with the pain of the loss itself and just kind of covers it over with churchy language about praising God in the midst of pain. What I want us to do is reckon very deeply with the pain that we experience in our lives and actually try to do what James is saying to do here, to actually consider it joy, to count it all joy when we meet trials. Because the reality of our life is that we are always dealing with suffering of one kind or another right? I say this all the time, but we are either coming out of some significant suffering, we are in the midst of some significant suffering, or we're about to enter into some serious suffering. Those are the only options in this broken world, right? And so when James says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, I feel like if we were honest with the pain and we're, if we are in the midst of feeling the realities of suffering and someone came up to us and said, hey, count it all joy, 
while we're in the midst of real, real pain, we might be tempted to smack that person. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying you might feel the temptation to smack such a person. I might. I have. I do. Okay? So uh, what I I want us to reckon with is the seriousness of this challenge, the difficulty of this challenge, and see how James unpacks that, okay? So he says, counter all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for or because, so here's the reason, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, a couple things. First, he says, now he's kind of framed our suffering as a test of faith. He goes, listen, count it all joy when you meet trials, all that suffering and pain, because you know that that is a testing of your faith. Now, we, we might not think about it that way, but certainly James is framing our suffering in spiritual terms that we would understand all the things that life hits us with as ultimately spiritual issues, okay? Now, again, there is a really kind of trite, bad, churchy way to deal with this, which is to say, okay, this pain's entering your life, and someone goes, okay, well, it's a test of your faith. It's a test of your faith. You're going to get through this. It's a test of your faith, right? And I don't know if it's just the tone of their voice that's smacky or, or if it's a, the actual content of what they're saying, but there is something so trite and almost dismissive about that that doesn't actually reckon with the depth of the pain people are experiencing and the call that James is giving us to actually count it joy, to actually see it as a test of our faith, in which we might say, okay, how? Like, what does that mean that it's testing my faith? Is it testing my faith in the sense that, like, will this suffering cause me to stop believing in God? Because that happens a lot. In 20 years of being a pastor, I would say the number of people who have lost their faith as a result of some uh, kind of intellectual crisis compared to the folks that have lost their faith because of some significant pain or suffering is not even close. Almost 100% of the time, people who walk away from the faith do so because of some sort of pain and suffering. It might be relational pain. It might be, uh, you know, experiential suffering. It might be somebody uh, dying in their lives. It It could be a million things, but it's always an experience of pain. And then sometimes it gets shrouded with intellectual questions. They go, well, I experienced this pain, but now I'm going to pretend like I'm having just some real doubts about, you know, the the trustworthiness of the Bible or something like that, right? When in in fact, it's really about, I can't can't reconcile the pain I'm feeling with, with a good God, who would allow that to happen, okay? And it's almost always personal, okay? So I, I want us to take very seriously James's, what, what James is saying here. So pain and suffering, testing of our faith, so we should count that joy because it produces steadfastness, which is, you know, just what everybody hopes and dreams for, you know? Like when we are just like, you know, vision boarding our lives, the big word at the top is always steadfastness, right? I mean, it's probably one of the sexiest promises in the Bible. No, it's a huge letdown. (laughs) It's a huge letdown that that's the end of the sentence. That James goes, listen, when you meet real pain and suffering, rejoice 
Because it's a testing of your faith. And if you can pass the test, it's going to produce steadfastness in you. Nobody wants that. That doesn't seem worth it. If we're really honest, if that was the payoff, if it was counted all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because it's a testing of your faith and it'll make you rich, we'd be like, great, yeah, I'm in. I mean, there's a million ways that James could have ended that sentence that are better than steadfastness. So what's that mean? Steadfastness, very simply, is just strength, immovability. It produces a, a strength in you. If, you. if you can kind of do it right, the way we're going to see, if you can kind of handle this pain right, deal with it the right way, it will produce a strength in you. Okay, so the illustration that immediately jumps to mind for me is working out because I do it so much. And, um, and so, uh, you know, if you, you think about working out, right, you are, you are doing normal movements but with weight on you. Right? And when you do those movements, it makes you stronger. Now, the, the process of working out, the experience of working out is terrible. Right? We can all agree to that. Right? Like it's not a good thing. Okay? And so you put a bar on your back when you do a squat, and, and as soon as you stand up with that bar, you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I here? This is, this is an awful experience. But then you kind of dip down, you get to the bottom, you come back up, and each and every time you do that, you get a little stronger, and that's the payoff. That's the payoff. Okay? And so you show up the next day, and you put a little more weight, and you do it again, and you get a little stronger. And you show up the next day, and you put some more weight, you do it again, and you get a little stronger. And stronger, and stronger, and stronger, until one day you're steadfast. You're immovable. No matter what comes your way. A lot of guys who work out talk about working out, it makes you harder to kill. Which I know is an ever-present reality for most of the gym bros that I meet, you know. But it strengthens you, right? The, and, and, and more than just the muscles, it, it, it strengthens actually your nervous system. It strengthens your mind to have to put more weight on. The moment you take that bar off the rack and stand underneath it, that is a test of your mind to go, okay, I'm going to do this terrible thing. And every time you do it, you get a little stronger and a little stronger physically, your ner nervous system, your brain, all of it, spiritually. I mean, you're praying through that at a certain point, right? Like you just are getting stronger. And that's the promise of James. And in fact, it forms you. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that there is an effect to this strengthening because, as I said before, we are always either coming out of some suffering, we are in some suffering, we're about to be in some suffering. So there's always kind of the winds of pain buffeting us. There's always the winds of suffering trying to push us down, to tear us apart, to take us off the path. And so the stronger and more steadfast and more immovable we are, the less likely the next pain is to knock us off course. And if we can do that and be steadfast and be strengthened, then he says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Now there's a promise, right? James should have led with that. Not, you know, not a great motivator, James. Should have led with the perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, not the steadfastness. 
And these three words are, are, are critical words, are important for us to understand. So this word perfect, I use it all the time. It's the Greek word teleos, which means not perfect in, in terms of like absence of fault, but perfectly suited for its end. It is perfectly designed, perfectly shaped to accomplish the purpose for which it was made. Right? So a hammer that is perfectly designed to hammer in a nail. That is a simple and perfect design. It is not that hammer isn't without sin. It is just perfectly designed for what it was made for. That's what he means by perfect. Complete. That there is a sense of maturation that happens, right? That we, we are growing and growing and getting better and getting better, and there is an increasing completeness as a result of this steadfastness, as a result of us seeing all of these sufferings in terms of spiritual framework and therefore counting it joy. So it builds that way. So it perfects us. It matures and completes us, and then we lack nothing. Again, the language here in the Greek is uh, to, to speak of like having the resources to accomplish what you need, the tools to accomplish what you need in order to weather the next storm and the next storm and the next storm that, that is just life. Okay? So again, in these three verses, two, three, and four, James gives us a complete theology of suffering. I mean, it's remarkable. These, these three, I think the most amazing verses in the New Testament. So again, to track his, his, his logic here, because we're about to get into our passage, 13 minutes in, we're almost to my sermon. Okay, so he says, count it all joy when you meet suffering, trials is the word, trials of various kinds. Okay, count it all joy for you know that the testing of your faith, we'll talk about what he means by that, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, a strengthening. And as you get strengthened, you are also perfected, completed, and given all the tools you need to navigate the world that God's put us in. Do we understand James's logic there? Okay, so how do we do that? Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without a reproach, and it will be given to him. So now, I'm not going to re-preach the rest of uh, Harvey's sermon, because you can go back and listen to it, but here, here's what, what James is saying. If we can see the situation in front of us as a, as a blessing from God, as a test of our faith, a way to make our faith stronger, then, then the resulting perfection, completeness, and lacking nothing, it, that, that is the result, right? The difference between us being able to do that and not being able to do that is the wisdom of God that James talks about in verses 5 through 12. The wisdom of God that he gives us. The wisdom to be able to see our lives, to see everything that comes our way, the way God intends for us to see it, right? That's what differentiates between whether or not we are made steadfast by pain or what we'll look at as the alternative in our verses today. That wisdom of God, which is the gospel in its kind of greatest form, most macro form, the gospel is the wisdom of God, and that's what differentiates the way in which we deal with pain and suffering. When we choose to see life through the lens of the gospel, we can deal with life the way God intends. Okay, When we don't see life through the lens of the gospel, different things happen. And that's what we're going to look at now. So skip down to verse 12. So after talking about uh, the wisdom of God and, and how God offers that wisdom to us, he says then, blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Okay, so that's the promise, right? Like if we can be steadfast, maintain that wisdom of God, gospel of God uh, kind of mindset and see everything in our world through that lens, then, then there is at the end the crown of life, which is eternal life with God. That's the, the big word, eschatological, the end time promise, the final promise of, of the wisdom of God. Now, verse 13, he shifts. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, here's what we got to see. We're doing a lot of Greek today. You're welcome, okay? So here's what you need to see. The word trial that he has used in verses 1 through 12 thus far is the Greek word perosmos, okay? On three, everyone's going to say perosmos. One, two, three, perosmos. Terrible. Work on your, on, on your accent there. Okay, perosmos is trial. Now, in verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, that word is peirazo. So he shifts from peirazmos to peirazo. What does that mean? Well, that these two words are nearly identical. Nearly identical, the exact same root with just a slightly different sense of them. So this is James' argument. If we can see suffering in our lives as the hand of God working to make us steadfast, therefore perfecting, completing, lacking in nothing, if we can see by the wisdom of God that, that trial, that most, then this is what it produced. But if we see the pain and suffering of God without the lens of the gospel, outside of the wisdom of God, that peirosmos becomes peirotso, which is a temptation. Same, same experience, same life, same pain, same suffering. The difference is whether or not we see it through the lens of the wisdom of God, therefore the gospel, or we see it outside of the wisdom of God, and therefore it becomes temptation. The difference isn't in the event, it's in the perspective and the resulting response that we have to it. Okay, so he says, let no one say when he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, this idea of different perspectives uh, on the same experience is a thoroughly biblical uh, concept. In fact, one of, uh, one of the great stories in the Bible out of Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers because he was the favorite child. At the very end, after all the whole story kind of reconciles, Joseph says to his brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. They sold him into slavery. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt, rises to prominence, makes several shrewd, wise decisions, saves not only Egypt, but a bunch of people that are surrounding, including his own family. His brothers, once they find out it's him, are terrified because they think, whoa, we sold the dude into slavery. He's probably still upset about that. And, and, and so they try to flee. They try to like negotiate with him. And he says, don't worry about it. Sure, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good, 
God knew what was happening. God knew what he was doing. And God used that to bring about me rising to prominence and being able to save all these people, including you. So he says, I will provide for you and your little ones. He comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, if you were a person who was sold into slavery, I mean, that is, that is an objectively evil thing to have happened. That is an objectively evil thing. Joseph had a choice in that moment to see it through the lens of the wisdom of God, to say, hey, God, what are you doing in the midst of this? Why is this happening? God, what, what are you doing in my life? Or he could have said, this is evil. My brothers are terrible, and I vow to you know, go John Wick style on them, or I, I vow to avenge them, avenge myself against them, and murder all of them. I mean, there are probably a range of choices, but those are the big ones, right? Joseph... I mean, in ways that I personally could not imagine. Like, I, I do not have the character that Joseph had. If, if my brothers sold me into slavery, I would be more angry than he is. But Joseph somehow is able to go, no, God was working. God was doing a thing. Yes, what you did was evil. But I'm going to take care of you because that's what God worked in my life. It's incredible. Same event different experience of different framework of it that then resulted in different response. So each and every one of us are dealing with different things, job loss, family loss, financial concerns. We, over the last you know, week or so, have had multiple floods in and out of our house and, uh, and you know, dealing with dripping water onto our pillows and all the fun things that come with the only time it's rained in L.A. in uh, 100 years. And... Uh, and owning a 100-year-old house, right? And so all of, all of the suffering from small things like, like water leaks to big things like family loss and job loss and financial ruin all present us with the same challenge that Joseph faced. We can choose bitterness. We can choose the bitterness of loss that leads ultimately to destruction of family and relationships and self. Or we can choose to try to walk the path of Joseph that said, no, what, what is God doing here? What is, what is God doing? This? What is God trying to do in me? How is God trying to shape me? How is God trying to affect me? How is God trying to shape my family? What, what's the opportunity here? And this really is the difference between those who walk in the wisdom of God and those who in moment by moment, this is not like you do it once and this is just the path you're on. I mean, this is the, a decision we have to make a million times a day. Will I walk in the wisdom of God or will I not in this situation? Christians ha have access to the true story, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration, gospel story of the world, and we get to have the choice to see everything in our lives through that lens, to be able to acknowledge like, hey, this isn't how it should be, but it is because of sin. God is redeeming this. God can redeem this and will ultimately restore it. We have the ability to do that each and every time we're faced with pain and suffering. doesn't mean we always do, because the alternative is what we often do and what clearly the people James is writing to here, which is blame. They were blaming God. They were dealing with pain as Jews displaced in the Roman Empire. They were dealing with suffering and oppression. 
And oftentimes when you read an epistle and, and kind of out of nowhere, the writer says, hey, don't do this. You can assume they've been doing that, right? So he says, let no one when he is tempted say, I'm being tempted by God, which means that the pain and suffering these people were feeling, they were blaming on God. And we blame on God. We blame on people around us. We blame our parents. We blame society. We blame our political foes. We blame our actual enemies. Sometimes we blame our friends. We blame, blame, blame. Say, this isn't something God is doing for my good. We say it's evil and bad and it's your fault. It's their fault. They did this. This is a universal response. This is the alternative to the wisdom of God. To blame. People have been blaming God since the very beginning. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, right after Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And verse 8 says, And they heard, they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? One of the best questions in the Bible, right? So it's a question, if you've had kids, there's a moment where kids realize they're naked, you know? It's like, before that, they're just, they are naked, but they don't know it. They're just themselves, and they're just flapping around and stuff. So um, this was a great moment. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man, Adam, said, the woman, whom, by the way, you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, I mean, Adam blames Eve and very quickly reminds God, well, you know, who you introduced me to, by the way. Thanks a lot for that blind date hookup. And then Eve goes, well, the snake. It was a snake. He hissed a lot, and I just couldn't resist, you know. Blame. From the very beginning. James here says it's not God's fault. It's not God's fault because, again, he is who he is. God is good. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. And this has to be at the center of our faith, that God is not the kind of God that tempts. God is not the kind of God who deals with evil. God is not the kind of God who traffics in evil. And so when pain and suffering enter our life, God cannot be blamed for it. So who or what is to blame? Verse 14. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be deceived. Every good gift, that's verse 16, never mind, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The blame starts here. The blame starts here. And man, this is a wildly unpopular idea in our culture today. The last person that the world tells you to blame is you. Right? Everything around us tells us it's somebody else's fault. It's not your fault. It's, it's culture. It's society. It's the right. It's the left. It's your parents, probably. It, it's the system. It's the man. It's the patriarchy. It's a million things, but it's never you. It's never you. 
And the Bible, for thousands of years, has said, no, 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 it's you. It's you. Now, that's not to say that there are not external triggers that, that, that cause this or, or, or can trigger this in us, but the, but the actual cause, the brokenness, is in here. When my daughter Lily, who's 14 now, uh, was little, and she would sin a lot, um, we used to talk about the yuckies inside of her that, that were causing her to have a bad attitude, to abuse her siblings, to whatever it was that she was doing at the time, right? And we would talk about the yuckies. The yuckies are winning inside you, Lily. Don't let the yuckies win. I don't know if that was great parenting now in retrospect, but that's how we talked about it. In fact, just recently, she's 14 now, but she's like, I think the yuckies are getting me, daddy. And um, uh, but that idea of, of this internal desire, and James even gets very specific. He goes in verse 14 again, says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Two ideas here. The first is that each of us is, uh, has our own set of desires that is within us, right? Some of the things that y'all are tempted to, I'm not tempted to. Some of the things that I'm tempted to, you all are not tempted to, right? There is a unique brokenness inside each of us that kind of reaches out to the world to, to try to solve, to try to heal that brokenness. And it looks different for each and every one of us. So there are external triggers that trigger my personal internal brokenness. So what we want to do is blame the trigger when in fact it's just kind of poking at something that's internally broken inside of us. So that's a fine line because I think there's a part of us both on the kind of fundamentalist side and the kind of irreligious side that wants to blame external realities and we have to be aware of the danger of external realities but, but reckon with the fact that the brokenness is in here. It's not the world, it's not the right, it's not the constriction, it's not the whatever, it's in here and there are things that trigger that. That's idea number one. Idea number two is that James goes, these desires are luring us and enticing us, right? There's almost like a fishing or hunting uh, metaphor here. And I've never done either of those things, but I've seen them on TV and I can kind of understand here what James is talking about, right? Like there's a slow luring in of our desires, of our sin, right? And this is a kind of biblically consistent way to think about sin. That this, It's kind of this intro from Genesis 3 to Romans 5 to even the kind of famous passage in Romans 7 where Paul says, I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And if I do what I want to do, I agree with the law that it's good and that's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That, that kind of famous wrestle that Paul has in Romans 7 where he goes, just there's something in me warm with me because when I'm when I'm conscious about it this isn't the person I want to be but there's this thing inside of me this desire this luring enticing that wants me to be this different kind of person and I think we can all relate to that we can all relate to the to, to that disconnect between who I want to be who I know God wants me to be and not just in a guilt or shame kind of way but the person I, I, I envision myself being and and the reality of the desires within me and that desire is ever present 
the, the turning point is the conception. Verse 15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. And, and, and this is the different, right? The, the, the desire is always present, and there's this moment of conception when that desire turns into sin. Uh, Douglas Moo, a, a pastor and Bible commentator, says it this way, Christian maturity is not indicated by the infrequency of temptation, but by the infrequency of succumbing to temptation. Right? The temptation never goes away. The brokenness is never fully healed, this side of Christ's return. And the external triggers don't go away. The, the mark of Christian maturity is our increasing in frequency of succumbing to that temptation. So in this, there is kind of a sense of process. That, that this desire, it lingers, it develops, it lures and entices until it's conceived. Right? I say this all the time. Nobody wakes up addicted to crack right? Like there's a process. There's steps along the way where our sin, our desires kind of lure us a little more and a little more and a little more and a little more and a little more until we're caught. What's more, James paints a really vivid picture of sin, that sin is not neutral. And, and uh, in many ways, our, our illustrations, our pictures of sin are incomplete. We talk about sin as missing the mark or making a mistake or breaking a random rule. But in fact, he says, sin brings death. He says, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, this is not because when God sees us sin, he kills us. Right? Like it's not this idea of like God trying to kill us for our sin. The idea is that God has created a path for us, that teleos that we were made for, and that when we sin, it is us saying, no, this isn't the path of life, that is, and we just walk off a cliff. That's the, that's the picture, right? That, that God has set forth a path of what it looks like to navigate his world, and when we sin, when we rebel, we're just saying, no, it's not the path, I want to go that way, and that way is you're walking off a cliff. Sin is a fundamental rejection of God as a good creator king. Sin is a fundamental rejection of God as a good creator king. So James is going, listen, these desires that are luring us, that are enticing us, that are drawing us, are, are literally trying to walk us off a cliff. They're, they're luring us away from the idea that God is good, that he created this world for us, and that he is the king that governs that world. Last, verse 16. Now he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything good comes from God, and everything that comes from God is good. That is where our faith has to begin. That every good thing has come from God, and that everything that comes our way is from God, and he is good. Because if we, if we lose that conviction, then each and every moment of pain and suffering and every person, every relationship, every, every decision we make, we have to reassess and go, is this good? Is what, what's happening here? No, if we start with the conviction that God is good and he is the generous giver of all good things, 
then it makes it much more simple to be able to ask instead of going, okay, what, why is this happening to me and do I deserve this and well, who's to blame and why, why do I have to deal with this? Instead to go, what is God doing in this? What is God doing? What is God trying to form in me? How is God trying to strengthen me? All of these trials that we face, all of the suffering are moments of choice for us. We either choose the gospel and the good and perfect gifts from God or we choose to reject the true story and we are left with, at best, scraps. But scraps that lead to death. Because there is something satisfying about being able to blame somebody else, right? Like, let's be honest. There is something satisfying about laying the blame, like emotionally satisfying about blaming somebody else, at least momentarily satisfying. But, but the Bible says the, the, that, that momentary satisfaction is a, a scrap of a good that ultimately leads to destruction. When in fact, walking in faith, walking in the wisdom of God is an ultimate good that leads to life. Don't be deceived, James says. Don't be deceived into thinking that God hates you or is against you or even that he doesn't want you to be happy. The difference is that he just wants you to be truly happy. And we don't always agree with him about what that means. God has given us all these great gifts. Verse 18, the greatest of all. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, cre- uh, of his creatures. Now, again, I want you to notice the words here. In verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. It is the same words as he used in verse 15, when he says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and when it is sin fully grown, brings forth death. James pairs the same word, says sin brings forth death, God brings forth life. I mean, at the end of the day, it's as simple as that. When we face down life's challenges, suffering, very real pain, and the million decisions that we have to make every single day to navigate life, if we can hold firm to that conviction, God brings forth life, sin brings forth death, man, we will navigate using the wisdom of God towards life over and over and over and over and over. God only brings good. Never forget that. So even the stuff that feels bad, that is painful, I mean, the very most painful things that we ever experience are for our good. If we can walk in them the way we put weight on our back and squat it down, it makes us stronger, it perfects us, it completes us, it gives us all the tools we need to continue to navigate God's world. Otherwise, those moments of pain become temptation. We, we begin to blame other people, and it leads us to death. So each and every moment when we face that pain, when we face, face suffering, when we face these decisions, ask yourself, what is God doing here? God is good. What is he doing? God is good. What is he, what is he shaping in me? What is God doing to me? Why is he making me do this? Why is he making me walk through this? What what is he trying to perfect in me or mature, make me complete? Or what tool is he trying to handle me so that I would have everything I need to navigate the rest of my life? Rather than, why is this happening to me? Why did they do this for me? 
It's their fault. I don't deserve this. They're doing this to me, and I don't deserve it. It's wrong, and I will blame them. That is a path that leads to death. It is a path that brings forth death. But God is good, and he brings things into our life for our good to strengthen us. If we can just see each and every, choose to see each and every one of those things in light of the gospel, to recognize, hey, this, is, this pain is not what God intended for me to deal with, but it is here as a result of sin. Sin in me, sin in others, but it's the result of sin. But Christ can redeem it, and he has redeemed it on the cross, and he will restore it one day and is restoring it even today. That is the way in which we can see the world through the wisdom of God. And I pray that we would each do that every day. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the embodiment of the wisdom of God. You are the one that um, that makes the pain good again. If, if ever we needed evidence that you have the ability to turn evil into good, the cross is that evidence. The greatest evil ever perpetrated on this planet, the murder of a perfect man who was God. There is no greater evil than that, no greater injustice. And yet you turned what could have been or might have looked like as the great, a great triumph for Satan and evil into the most powerful good our planet has ever known. The salvation of so many, of any who believe. So Lord, it, allow us to see, allow us to believe that if you can turn the greatest evil our world has ever known into its greatest good, its greatest triumph, that you can take whatever lesser evil, still painful, still real, not to diminish it, but, but lesser evil in our own lives and turn it into good. By your death, by your sacrifice, you have made that possible. Pray God that we would believe that and walk in it in expectation that you would use the pain in our lives to strengthen us, to complete us, to perfect us, to give us everything we need for your world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.